here. My name is Carlos Sarake. I'm a faculty member in the College of Education. And uh, I have a special honor uh, at this particular time, which is introduced, to introduce our College of Education Dean, Dr. Colleen Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy has been a leader of diversity in our college and a leader for the diversity committee. And she's also known for being a supporter of engaging faculty, students, administrators, and community members in constructive dialogue about critical issues affecting education. Our topic for today is the impact on education of the immigration debate. And I welcome you all here, and particularly welcome Dr. Pauline Kennedy. Please join me. that wonderful introduction. And I want to say on behalf of the College of Education what a pleasure it is to join with faculty, students, and august educational leaders, many of whom are graduates of the College of Education at the University of South Florida. We are making history here in a myriad number of ways, but one of which is the college has recently become iTunes University and affiliated with that at University of South Florida. So we are video podcasting uh, this discussion today, and we look forward to being able to post that on iTunes University as soon as it's up and running at USF. As the granddaughter of four immigrants, I know firsthand the hope that people have in their hearts when they come to this country in search of a better life. Many of you here today may be immigrants yourself, the son or daughters of one, the granddaughters or grandsons of immigrants. There is no question that the influx of immigrants that we have in our country are taxing our country to the limits, and people are wondering on what side of the issue do they come down on? What does it mean to the schools? What does it mean to be a teacher in the first line of defense when children ask you whether or not they can participate in demonstrations? What is happening to enrollment in schools when our principals tell us that many of the places that migrant children we're living are, have now turned into condos. Why is it that so many people now are fearful of bringing their children to school? What we're here today to discuss is to give you all of the knowledge and expertise that our educational leaders can bring to you and put you in a place and time certain, and that's within the schools of Florida, and bringing the whole discussion about immigration up close and personal to every faculty member in this room and to every student. I would like to in particular thank the Diversity Committee for arranging for this wonderful interchange of ideas. And at this time, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Marie Hill, Interim Chair of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies, and she will introduce our panelists. Dr. Hill? I'm an old sixth grade teacher, and immigration just begs for global geography and a global cultural fix. Um, we have uh, Canadian, the whole Canadian healthcare system being challenged by Somalians immigrating. We've got the Canary Islands being challenged daily by people fleeing from North Africa into, into, their, into their borders and their beautiful islands. So we have all over the world places that are being challenged and taxed to find ways to fold and embrace and bring in our, our immigrant population from all kinds of other places in the world. Uh, and, and of course, we start from a teacher standpoint from the idea of cultures and geography and all those factual bases. 
but then we can get to the heart and soul of what immigration means and what it means to be an immigrant and what it means to find ways to, to, to find and solve and, and consider the challenges that immigrants face. And we have a, a tremendous spectrum of, of a panel that bring to us expertise in, in several directions. We're, we're uh, fortunate that Hillsborough County could spare, could spare some uh, very important people on a, on a Friday. We're really glad to have them here. Um, David Steele is the uh, principal at Plant City High School. And just think of the name, Plant City High School, and you know that immigration is an issue in, in that part in, in that part of our, of our school district here in Hillsborough. Ken Oterio brings to us over 40 years in, in, school, in schools and in Hillsborough, and how many different jobs in Hillsborough alone? Well, actually, I've been eating school food in Hillsborough County for 52 years. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, so I've gone from uh, a student all the way through first grade to uh, now in my present position. Ken Oterio is the deputy superintendent, and um, deputy superintendent is one of those giant umbrella kinds of jobs that, that means, and all other assignments according to what the superintendent wants to you have you That's take exactly care of. exactly right. And uh, Bill Person also has a new umbrella job, and he's the director for pupil placement and support programs in Hillsborough County Schools. He's looking at the challenging new issues of charter schools, of magnet schools, and all kinds of other issues with pupil placement. I remember as a school principal calling this person in Orange County, his counterpart in Orange County, saying, all right, you know that grid I'm supposed to fill in on this new student. I'm going to fill it in with our school's address because this child lives in a car. And uh, the car is parked in front of our school right now, so that's their address. And, and uh, his counterpart in Orange County said, okay, we'll take care of that. We'll find a way. And, and that's what we're doing in schools. We're finding ways to make sure that we accommodate the needs of children. And um, James Gatlin went to Middleton High School. He has been gracious enough to um, allow our students to visit his school when we've had portfolio sessions and other kinds of experiences. And he is, he's one of these people. He can't, can't give it up. He retired and then came back. And here he is with a brand new, beautiful, I hope you've had a chance to visit Middleton High School. It's a beautiful complex. And we're so glad he's on our panel too today. And um, on down the line, we've got Vivian Oliva, who is a bilingual guidance counselor. And she just couldn't find that to be enough to fill up your day. So she's gracious enough to serve on our foundation board of trustees very important job and very demanding job. And I just met Elena Unterberger. Unter Elaine Unterberger. Unterberger. <laughs> she said it flows and it does. It's a beautiful name. And she brings another perspective to us. She is executive director of the Florida Institute of Community Studies 
she, her background's in anthropology with a master's and PhD from USF, and, and as most of this panel, they've been students in Hillsborough County, but they've also been students at USF, and is very interested in public health and education, and we know our definition of educator also incorporates the whole idea of, of community service and community health. And um, what we'd like each of you to do today is just to begin with about five minutes each on what, what you see as some of the challenges and some of the solutions to immigration in the area. And then we'd like to save uh, the majority of the time today for, for our audience. Uh, we're lucky to have a lot of pre-service teachers and uh, many other thinkers that have joined us today. And I know they'll have some great questions. And um, let's see. Dan, would you like to begin? <laughs> David, I'm sorry. David. <laughs> As a high school principal, I see that probably the greatest challenge is reaching out to the community. I mean, that's, a, that's an important part of the, of the immigration debate is, is making families feel welcome at school so they'll take part of it. Because aside from everything else, I mean, our role is to educate the students that are in the community. And that's what we have to do. At my school, we're, we're very fortunate that we have a migrant advocate with a staff who reaches out with community, makes home visits. Um, deals with the students on an individual basis, offering tutoring. We also offer after-school programs where they can make up credits that they might have missed during the year. That's called the PASS program. And many students who would not otherwise normally graduate take advantage of that to earn credits that they've missed along the way. <clears throat> many of my teachers are um, involved in the University of South Florida's Migrant Summer Institute. Um, one of my teachers used to be the director of the program. I have several teachers who teach in it. My wife used to be the guidance counselor in it several years ago. And again, I see that as our role in making sure that students who have moved into the community have a chance not only for an education, but a chance to graduate on time with their age cohort. So I see that as a, as a critical function. You know, within the schools, we all talk about teachable moments and how we turn these into lesson plans. I think that's helped our school also through this last year in particular. I mean, many of my social studies teachers have been able to use the immigration debate as a chance to teach lessons in class, to inform their students, and, and get them involved in, in community activities. So, you know, that's to me, the role of the school never changes. You know, the role of the school is to educate students. And, you know, to reach out and to do it in as many different ways as you can and also get the parents involved. I know whenever, whenever there's a need to have a, um, a parent meeting, I always welcome the fact that we can have it at our school because I think anything that gets parents to the school makes them more willing to come for other events. I mean, for instance, in two weeks or a week and a half on the 26th, we have a, a financial aid nighttime session that's presented by the district in Spanish, where, they're, again, to reach out to people who might not otherwise be part of higher education to make that available. And it goes hand in hand. We have a program at our school called AVID, and we're the only part of the county right now that has a middle school to high school AVID program. 
But again, the function is to get students to higher education who would not otherwise go. It's for low-income students, for first-generation college-goers, where we identify approximately 50 eighth-graders a year, put them into that AVID program in ninth grade, and encourage them to take honors and advanced placement classes as they go through school. So, you know, many different roles for the school. But the bottom line is to make sure that the students know of the avenues that are available to them after high school. Excellent. Great examples. Ken? Yeah. David touched on a lot of things because what goes on at one school basically are some of the same elements that go on in all 200 or so of our schools in the school district. But one thing that's real important, and I think you the studies indicate this, that kids do better when kids are connected to the school of which they attend. And one of the issues that face migrant students in our school system is that connectivity that has to be established at the school. Particularly now in light of the political debate over the issue because we have seen situations where some parents will not even send their kids to school for fear that there may be some ramifications which there cannot be by law in terms of what the school's role of it, but would actually keep the kids at home because they, they're afraid that something would happen if they, they know that they're here illegally or whatever the situation might be. The other thing, it's, it's a huge task that this district has to do is to make sure that all parents are communicated with, like uh, Dr. Steele just mentioned, we try to schedule everything we do and go basically above and beyond when we try to reach the parents of particularly our migrant students or our other students who immigrate into this country because it's the same issue with any group of people that come in and for one thing they're a disadvantage not speaking the language. I mean just think if you were placed in a place where you had no idea of the language and to understand it and then have to get involved in something as complicated and as important as educating your children. So that, that's a, that has a, creates a huge task on the part of the district to be able to do that. And we try to do that in many means. Uh, Dr. Steele mentioned some, but we also have, even our superintendent has taken the approach of actually having town meetings and meeting with the parents and in areas where there are large numbers of parents who don't speak English have translators with the headphones and the whole nine yards so, so the conversation can be had between the superintendent and the family of the immigrant children. But And it's an issue, there, there's a political end of that which to be frank with you, the school district, while it's a teachable moment, can't really get involved in the political end of that argument. So that also creates an issue because you know as well as I, those of you who either are aspiring to be teachers or are, sometimes the role of the school is seen well beyond educating children to the point of almost raising children. And those issues do come up. In the area of pupil placement, <clears throat> Hillsborough County Schools is now the eighth largest school district in the United States. We have surpassed Philadelphia this year. Last year we surpassed the city of Detroit and the state of Hawaii. We're nearing 200,000 students. Uh, it's a very diverse community and you're aware of that. One of the biggest challenges we have 
and pupil placement is to maintain a diverse school system. Our school district, along with 16 other school districts in the state of Florida, is majority minority. Our demographics, our student population in Hillsborough County, now is majority minority, as other large districts. One of our major concerns is with our uh, projected enrollments. You may be interested to know that last year we picked up 6,200 new students than the previous year. The year before, we picked up 7,100 students more than the previous year. This year, we picked up 1,600 new students. And in the eyes of some, we have lost students. We didn't lose students. We only picked up 1,600. Some of the large districts, Miami's twice, age twice the size we are, folks. They're the third largest school district in the United States. And other districts in the state are actually losing students to the tune of a thousand or two thousand less students each year. One of the major areas we can contribute to this is our immigrant migrant population. And it was alluded to earlier that your tomato fields in, your, in, in the south part of the county and your strawberry fields in the east part of the county are now massive developments. We have subdivisions coming in south of, uh, just north of Ruskin, south of Apollo Beach, that will generate over 5,000 homes. Today, Fishhawk is only 4,000 homes. So incredible growth coming into the school district. Uh, we have worked very, very hard. One of the major goals is not only to provide a quality education to all children, regardless of their demographics or their ethnicity or their socioeconomic level, uh, but to do it and maintain a diverse school system. In 1971 to 2001, we operated under a federal court order on desegregation. And through student assignment, race-based student assignment and transportation, we achieved almost a perfect race ratio in all of our schools. But at what price to our communities and our parents and our students? And many of you have gone to public schools under those areas. Now, stands the DSEC order. The court, we were released from federal court supervision in 2001. And now we have entered into a parental choice plan that is voluntary. That, that offers opportunities either through magnet schools or choice placement into our schools throughout the district. And parents have the option to choose a school other than their neighborhood school. For three decades under desegregation, your parents had absolutely no option. Yeah, they had an option to go to private school or go to the school that they were assigned under a court order, which was a race-based system. So the, our school district has gone through incredible changes. In order to have a viable choice program, in order to maintain a diverse school system, which is in the best interest, our school board members feel and our educators feel, in the best interest of this community in this state, in a democracy, the university feels that way, the public school system feels that way, diversity is in, in the benefit of all individuals, that we have to have available seats in our, our schools. And if you've been reading the papers lately, I'm the gentleman that's moving all the kids and changing the attendance boundaries, and that's, and this is one of my bosses sitting right next to me. So uh, we're getting ready to probably move 22 or 24 schools will change student attendance boundaries. We're building schools. We're building additional wings to the tune of $139 million to address overcapacity issues. But we still have to move kids from overcrowded schools that schools have a, a, that have available seats. So I'd say to you is... Uh, in Hillsborough County Public Schools, in the area of placement, the way we operate, it makes no difference to us what the immigration status is of a child who comes into our school district. Regardless, that's not a concern of ours. We service any child 
18 years age, under the age of 18, regardless of their status with immigration. Uh, what we're seeing is less students coming in in the migrant area, and there's a, a number, num number of factors that attribute to that. But, uh, the last thing I'll say is we're facing class size reduction. We lost 25% of the available capacities in our schools in one day. We, had out, we have 124 elementary schools. Those elementary schools had 1,000 seats one day, the next day they had 750 seats. On class size reduction, which is a amendment to the Constitution. So not only are we trying to maintain a diverse school system through available space, we're losing that available space due to class size reduction. And the only way to accomplish that is to increase our capacities of our schools. Well, actually, I don't have a big uh, concern Wait a minute, I don't mean I don't have a concern. Uh, one of the things that occurred when I returned to work uh, was I was hit with the business that I had to uh, recertify in ESOL. And it brought about, a, a it, it renewed an awareness of what the uh, broader issues are. So, but so far as my particular school, we don't have a big problem uh, with immigration. Uh, we, as a matter of fact, we do have a, a philosophy of uh, embracing all uh, ethnicities and, and uh, all students who come into our being. And just as Ken said, we can't get political because all of the uh, guidelines and, and, and uh, rules are, are pretty well set. Uh, you know, we have to take all students and uh, we, we generally do that. Uh, I, I, the only immigration problem I can remember since I, my return in, at Middleton uh, per se we did have uh, maybe a couple of situations where uh, some of the, uh, we had a couple of immigrants who wanted to go directly into the magnet program without going through the, uh, the, the process of screening because we do screen uh, magnet uh, students, uh, that's all of them. And there were some people who became a, a bit upset over that process and perceived it to be uh, deliberate discrimination against an immigrant. And of course, we did go through an awful lot of, um, I guess, outreach services just to make sure that they understood that all uh, of the students who went into the magnet program had to go through that process. And I think once we got that uh, cleared, and I certainly did everything I could to influence them, so let's take them, you know, in order to make sure they didn't misunderstand. But uh, other than that, we have not really had a problem uh, with immigration. I've watched uh, from afar as all of the other developments uh, in terms of the demonstrations and some of the other actions taken by uh, some of the other communities about uh, that center around immigration, but it seems to be more focused on trying to shut people out. We don't engage in that at our school, uh, in our district, uh, so far as I know. So it's not really a problem at my particular school. Well, I'm glad I'm the last one in the long line of uh, school district uh, personnel because a lot of what the gentleman touched on is what I deal with on a daily basis. I'm one of two district positions titled Bilingual Guidance Counselor. I work with all migrants, immigrants, refugees, undocumented, etc. If you speak a language other than English, at some point, our paths will cross. Um, and usually in a very good way. I have to say that uh, Mr. Steele mentioned Pasos al Futuro, 
Pasos al Futuro is something that when um, myself and my partner, Jennifer Young, were brought on board, we began to engage with the Enlace Project here at the University of South Florida, and it was one of the things that grew out of that Enlace Project. Uh, Pasos al Futuro is conducted in Spanish for our Hispanic families to demystify the higher education red tape. Applying for financial aid, knowing what college is about. A lot of our families are not uh, familiar with uh, dorm situations, et cetera, the application process in their countries. They are tracked from the time they enter the secondary level. From the minute they enter the secondary level, which in some countries is fifth, sixth, or seventh grade, they are tracked. They are put into specific tracks, and that's it. It's not a matter of changing your mind. It's not a matter of what you'd like to do. They don't look at interest. You're simply tracked, and unfortunately, in many cases, that tracking isn't based on the ability of the child. It is based on the socioeconomic situation of the child. Uh, so when students come in, one of the first things I do if the student, it, when I'm contacted, is that I do the evaluation, translation, and placement. Uh, I do the academic records. I evaluate them. I tra I'll translate them first, or I find someone to assist in translation because we have over 100-plus languages spoken in our district and students who are coming to us from about 200 countries in the world. Our other language population is at about 45,000 plus. Of those 45,000, roughly 22,000 are ELLs as we speak. That's English language learners. And they are in our programs, our ELL program. We also provide through guidance services, the in-service, a lot of in-service for our site-based faculty and staff in the student <coughs> services area, psychologists, social workers, counselors, to deal with families and students who are coming into our school district. Uh, critical issues such as the immigration topic obviously impacts all of our schools. Uh, some to a tremendous extent and others to a lesser extent, but all of our schools are impacted. Some of the options from a counseling perspective in responding to the immigration question could be, first of all, providing correct information. And when, you, when I say provide correct information, I'm talking about unbiased information. Whether that information is being given to faculty and staff clerical people, or to the parents and students that are coming to us, okay? Uh, all the students need to be aware. All, everyone involved needs to be aware of the unbiased facts. So questions that people may have can be listened to and answered by imparting accurate information, dispelling myths, and reviewing various points of view and allowing students and others to digest what they've heard and to form their opinions. A second thing could be that we need to ensure students feel safe in a school environment, which I believe our county does. No student should feel threatened 
regardless of their immigration status. This was something that, that was brought up by one of the other panelists. Much of this, and Mr. Otero alluded to it, is covered by Plyler versus Doe, the Supreme Court decision that stated that students, Im immigrant students, whether documented or undocumented, could not be denied access to an education. The decision was based on the on the equal protection provisions under the 14th, under the 14th Amendment. This decision extended to the issue of equal access in educational programs. Uh, Mr. Gatlin talked about the, the, the magnet program. So all students in our district, regardless, have access to all of our programs, be they ESE, be they gifted, be they magnet, whatever they are, all students have that access. We need to be also sensitive school staff. One of the things Plyler versus Joe is they addressed the school staff issue and said that school staff needs to be aware and sensitive when working with all migrant students and families. And that to guard the confidentiality of the student's immigration status. Plyler even goes as far as to say that should a school be contacted by the INS, today called the BCIS, Bureau of Citizenship and Immigration Services, all of that is prohibited. Schools cannot, cannot be required to have any input to INS questions. If they are contact, they cannot initiate it, a school cannot initiate it. If they are contacted, then they need to refer the person to the principal, and the principal then goes to the district. This is all covered under Plyler versus Doe. Uh, number three, give foreign students the opportunity to discuss and vent their concerns and feelings in a counseling environment. And uh, remember, I'm speaking from a counseling perspective. We get kids coming in with all sorts of issues all the time. And if this is one of the issues, one of the good things to do would be to set up a small counseling group where these students could discuss their concerns by the same token, where we could have small counseling groups for students who are not immigrants who may also have concerns and have questions. So it works both ways, okay? Another thing is to refer students and their families to community-based agencies to assist in ongoing immigration-related issues or concerns. These agencies can act as a conduit to other resources that may assist families in resolving some of these issues. Uh, among the undocumented, there are a lot of different ways they can go. And one of the agencies I'm thinking about, because they just recently spoke to our guidance department that has moved here from St. Pete, is the Gulf Coast Jewish Family Services. They've just set up an office here. And they are working with immigrant parents of all languages. And it's amazing uh, when we heard the amount of services that they're giving, not only tutoring and assistance, from an educational point of view for the students, but they are also giving information and being the conduit, as I said, for immigration problems that families may have. So this is a, uh, these are all things that could possibly work uh, and that we can use at our school sites. Ali? 
Well, I'm really excited to be last. Sure. Um, my name is Elaine Unterberger. I know everyone's confused. You should never put a Y in the middle of anyone's name, especially if they've got the last name Unterberger. And although I did get my master's at USF, I did go to the University of Florida for my PhD. I just have to be on the record with that. Otherwise, people get angry. They're, they're not really happy about that. Um, so actually, this I'm, I'm not with the school system. Um, I'm the executive director of, somewhat um, by happenstance, of the Florida Institute for Community Studies. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. But um, one of the things that I thought I would do as a contributor when Dr. Salaquit, thankfully, um, invited me here, is to show you some real life pictures of what, what is really going on at the community level. Um, at the school levels, I mean, I understand some of the comments that were made earlier. There is an immigration problem. We have a serious immigration problem in this country. And um, I know that Vivian deals with it every day. She's where that rubber hits the road. We deal with it on a different level. Um, but I think it's because there's a social context to education. And that social context right now, the laws that she was talking about, Plyler versus Doe, are in conflict with current immigration uh, reforms that are underway. So when you see people who come here for a better life, who have all of these wonderful aspirations for their children, understanding that that might be taken away. And don't undervalue what they think about the school system. They love free school. It's one of the main reasons people come here, because they believe in education. So um, with that being said, I'm just going to give you a little bit of pictures, a little bit of a background, and challenge you, because I would really like to open this up for comments and questions. I'm sure you have a lot of them. Um, so there's some pictures of two girls who were at our, um, at our march in Waimama. And I'm sorry for the people who are remotely watching. You probably can't see these slides, but you're not missing that much. They're just um, some slides that we took at the, at the march. Um, I'll try to go over what's, what's on them for them. Um, what happened was on May 1st, 2006, and this was something called Sabanas Blancas para la Justicia, or White Sheets for Justice. This was something that was brought up by our Community Advisory Board at the Institute, um, and the sheet symbolized people who were afraid to come out and march for rights. Um, they decided that the situation was so critical that people have a voice, but they were afraid and they knew a lot of people were um, threatened to lose their jobs, to be deported. They said, okay, what we'll do is we'll accept white sheets and we'll tie them together to symbolize all the people who are afraid to come out. And we're not going to do it all the way down on Dale Mabry because there was a whole big issue about that and rumors that the um, INS and the school system were going to take pictures and all kinds of things that you guys don't even want to know. Um, so there were lots and lots of rumors and miscommunications. So we decided to do this right in Waimama, Florida. Waimama, incidentally, is one of the places where the farms are becoming houses. <laughs> um, and so our mission at the Institute is to partner with communities, we're statewide, um, to help them achieve their goals through research, service, training, and education. And so we see ourselves as facilitators. We're trying to, to be facilitators with the communities. We do a lot of events, and that's kind of our model, to do events in the community, to build community. And someone, I think it was Dr. Steele, said the role of the school is to educate students. And we see our role as to facilitate community empowerment to get communities linked and understanding at different levels how they can um, be stronger. So our community advisory board in Waimama, there's some pictures of them. 
they got together, they were real concerned about our issues, and next slide. So the prolong is like this. We have our community advisory board. It's been around for 10 years. They were concerned, as I said, um, about people being involved, and they really wanted to make sure that people had the ability to participate in their own self-definition and, and identity. Um, so there was so much fear that they felt, we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out, and they worked with the local church, the Catholic Church in Waimama. And so what I'm going to show you next are some of the pictures. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, maybe you're kind of forgot, there were three things that immigrants were asked to do, or not do, actually, on May 1st. The first thing was to not go to work, which is tough because that's why they're here. <laughs> the second thing was to not buy anything. And the third thing was to not send their children to school. So one of our community advisory board members felt very strongly that you could do two of the three, but not all of the three, and um, convinced our community, basically, to try to send their kids to school. They felt that that was sending the wrong message, that children should be sent to school. You're going to see in the pictures that we did have children. Not everybody did this. There was um, a lot of fear on the other side where um, this was made into a Mexican, non-Mexican issue, even amongst the Hispanic populations. And I think Vivian alluded a little bit to this. Um, there were issues about why should the Mexican students, and you guys can think about this, why should the Mexican students get to stay home? You know, they, they have their papers, why are they staying home? Why don't they have to go to school? Um, and so those were some of the community's um, fears that they had. And then there was other issues about um, what would happen later. So I'm going to show you, um, these are some of the pictures where people did come out. We were a little overwhelmed. Next. If any of you know State Route, State Route 674, um, it goes east and west in South Hillsborough County. These are just some of the pictures of the sheets tied together. Next. It got very large, so by about noon, go ahead, um, we ended up at the Guadalupe Church and we took over, we tied all the sheets together and we had the bishop sent, the Catholic bishop sent um, an emissary and had community people speak. So it lasted for about an hour and then we walked two miles back to the post office and got in our cars and it was overall a very successful event. It was very calm, we only had one person um, stop and, and say, why are you here? And we had a police escort, actually. The police did come out and support their right to, to have the walk, the march. Um, so some of the questions that were posed are, you know, what are some of the things that we should do about this um, when, when these critical events happen? And I think that schools really are microcosms of society, but there are some different uh, social things that come into play. Um, and I think that there, there's a lot of things that schools could do but like we said, schools can't be the panacea. They can't take on every single role. Maybe these are better forms for those kinds of discussions. At the university, a little bit further removed from that. But I think that parents and teachers and principals and community together should discuss this because when you have issues that are happening at the federal level that are in conflict with the local level, that's, that's where we have a lot of this, um, this problem. And, um, I keep coming back, I know that I'm going to sound like an anthropologist or more like a sociologist, but um, for the students out there, there's a book that really puts this in perspective from 1950s, which is Beyond the Melting Pot. Um, it was done in New York City, 
and it looked at the established immigrants and the new immigrants. Mm -hmm. And it's a classic, you know, it's been updated many, many times. But these are not new dilemmas we have in this country. There's always been friction between new immigrant groups and established immigrant groups. And I think what's, what's critical right now is the level of that debate. It's not that it's happening, it's just the level of it. And the last slide is just to remind you that, um, <laughs> just like they said, we took the day off work. We get federal funding. So my staff and I who participated to support our community, we took the day off, we took vacation days. Um, and our community advisory board always tells us this, it's all about trust. Um, the reason we were out there was we were supporting their rights and making them feel safer because we were all U.S. citizens. Um, and actually a lot of the people who came out were U.S. citizens. They weren't primarily undocumented workers. So thank you and I look forward to your comments. And, and what kinds of questions? You can see the diverse perspective that um, the, the new immigrants to the area, and when you think of the history of this area, immigrants are celebrated at Gasparilla. I mean, it's, 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 it's such a melting pot just within the Tampa Bay area of generations and generations of people from all over the world. Uh, who, who has a question, something specific for any of This is to Ms. Oliva. First, my name is Bob Davis. I work with um, students, migrant students as well. And my question is, what type of collaboration is being made between Hillsborough County Schools and post-secondary education institutions for immigrant students to enroll and receive adequate financial assistance um, uh, at a college or university? In our Pasos al Futuro, like I said, that was an outgrowth of the Enlace Project here at the University of South Florida. And we do have representatives from the admissions office who go and uh, speak about the uh, registration process, the admissions process, not only from South Florida, but from HCC, from Tampa U, from the local, local uh, universities. That is one of the things that we do. The other thing is simply to take the process and go through it with the family. We also are involved in College Goal Sunday. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Tam uh, Florida was in it for the first time last year. This is a Lumina Foundation uh, project where on one Sunday, uh, students who are from underrepresented groups uh, come to a site or a series of sites and are assisted to fill out the FAFSA in if they're Spanish speakers in their own language. And that's something that occurs uh, this year, it's on February 25th. What do you do? Most of those students don't even have a social security number. So therefore, you know, as far as filling out the FAFSA application and being, you know, uh, well, If you're talking about the undocumented, uh, when you're, you see, there's migrants, there's undocumented, there's immigrants, and there are refugees. And all of these people have different status for the point of residency for tuition purposes. So depending on the group that you're working with, you either may or may not fill out the FAFSA. Okay? Uh, yes? I would, I would like to respond to that because I think that in your position maybe you can help with that situation. Um, 
if, if the student is undocumented, currently at the University of South Florida, I'm working with a student in Waimama who's got an amazing GPA and she's very involved, but she doesn't have a social security number. Mm -hmm. um, I talked to Dr. Zalaquet about this as well. We tried, to, um, we tried to have her apply online and it won't take her application because she does not have a social mm -hmm. security number. She doesn't qualify for anything but out-of-state tuition as a foreign student. And so these are some issues that require advocacy, um, both from outside and, and inside of, of institutions to try to help students mm -hmm. who really deserve, you know, who grew up their whole lives here. Let me pick it up from there. Mm -hmm. Yours is in Waimama. Last year, no, two years ago, we had two students, uh, and I don't know if Mr. Steele was at Plant City High School at the time, but they were undocumented. Uh, and at that time, not all universities would even accept applications from undocumented students. Today, all, all 11 Florida State universities, four-year universities, will accept them. As you just alluded to, they go through their, their if they're going to apply, you're not going to do it online. You need no. to contact the admissions office or your international student admissions office to apply. And depending on GPA, ACT, everything everybody else has to do, you will either be admitted or not. The difference is you're admitted as an out-of-state student. Here comes the situation I was just talking about. We had two very, very, very excellent students at Plant City High School who were graduating and were undocumented. And what we did was advocate for them here at the university. It ended up that uh, these students were both admitted to the Honors College here. Once they were admitted to the Honors College, that is viewed almost as a scholarship. So if an institution grants them, and it could be a book scholarship, an institutional scholarship, usually a waiver for out-of-state tuition is also issued, and they pay in-state tuition. This is one of the ways that I have seen universities deal with this. It's difficult. It's difficult, but if you have an excellent student, it can work, and it did in this case. I can imagine that parents of undocumented children are scared to allow their children to go to school. Is anything being done to allow them to know that they can send their children to school? Yes. <laughs> In a word, yes. I think this is a, a piece of news that K through 12, I would say parents feel documented or undocumented, relatively safe in their children coming to school and being accepted because it, it, it is something that is done. It is simply the law. Okay, and, and students are accepted when they come in. We are not even, we don't even ask for immigration status. That's against the law. So when you come in, you with your child, the only kind of thing you're asked for is to prove where you live to see if you're in the district of the school you've come to enroll in. Am I correct, Mr. That's Person? Correct. Okay, that's all that's asked for. Not your immigration status, not your social security number, not anything that would allude to that part of your life. If I could add something, the difficulty with that is that the parents who don't bring their kids, we don't know who they are. 
So it isn't a matter of a personal visit, because we do have people that will go to homes and all that, do that when it comes to our attention. Usually it comes to our attention via another family member, a neighbor, somebody that says, you know, there's kids here, they're not coming to school, we think it's because of this, and then we'll actually go to the home and make it clear that whatever their status is has nothing to do with the education of their children. And then we try to do things with, through our migrant advocates and various others to get that information out there. But the difficult part is usually the ones that don't send their kids to school is that we don't know who they are. And Mr. Otario was talking about an, another key issue in his opening statements, and that is that the student, and that we find ways to connect students to schools and, and schools to students, and that we create truly a community of learners. And, um, and I could tell by the, the kinds of things that are happening at Plant City High School and, and, and some of the other schools I've visited in the area, those things are happening, that people are reaching out, trying to really, trying to really blend that. Uh, Dr. Keller works with um, the USF Collaborative for Family Schools and Communities, and that our USF Collaborative is working intently to talk about and look at, we're working on a couple of research studies in our department, looking at social capital. How do we help children develop social capital? How do we help them feel like they've got a network that they can call on and, and uh, ways to get things done and ways to navigate the system and how do they find, how do they learn how to do that? Um, Many of us were first-generation college people in our families, and we didn't know the ropes. And so what can we do to, to uh, find ways to make, to make the going easier in K-12 and then at the university level for, for all students? So I think that was a, an, an important impact, an important piece of, of what schools are doing. Somebody else had a question right there. They can apply for free, for free lunch, and, and uh, families that qualify from the financial end do receive free lunch. They, they issue them. And they issue them. Um, the state's what they call a state student number. There's a state student number. And but you can't use it. Yeah. yeah, every student. Every student. Every student, every student has, a, has a student number. number. And it's not a, secure, a social security number. Social security. So it, it really, they, they get the same services that a student who. No, you just no, have you to you not. have to give the uh, income that the family receives. The income level, then, and usually they ask the number of children, etc. And those applications are generally, in most schools, given at the time of registration to every family that comes in. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's part of the packet. I would just add that it's not a problem within the school system for students to get services. It's when they leave the school system, when they're in the community. Um, if the students were not born here, I mean, there's cases where 
the students should be eligible for services because they're U.S. citizens, but their parents are not, like food stamps. So they can't apply. It's outside of the school system where, where there's serious problems. I think this may relate to outside the school system. The, I understand there's the rules about schools being involved in political taking sides or something. But when you have a large number of students in the school who are being impacted, their families and so forth, there's discussion, there's activity in the community around an issue like immigration policy. What kind of help do students and teachers get in the school that will support them outside? I mean, you can't take a position, but who advocates for their right to demonstrate? Who explains to them what they may answer or what they don't have to answer or how they can be safe? Where do they, where does the, the teacher's role come in with helping these students deal with situations that are political, that hurt them, that they don't want to be involved in because their families are involved. I think to a large part that becomes the role of the migrant advocate at our school and, and at, you know, quite a few schools in the district have a migrant advocate um, who does remain in contact with parents, talks with the students, as I say, like in in our program, we have an advocate plus two aides to, to work with the students and work with the families. So I think that's a large role. And I think as far as you, you had a question about like participation and activities, I think the school's role is to allow rather than encourage. I mean, you know, I, I, but, you know, when a situation arises that a parent wants their child to participate in, you know, our role is to have a procedure for the parent to request that their child be not in school that day and for us to allow them to go. And, and you know, that's something that we have in place for, for many different situations. And can they have an opportunity to understand that? Can they, histories, social studies, classes, clubs, can they do any kind of I would say the, I'm sorry. I would say the difference between education and advocacy may be my answer to your question. I mean, you know, certainly in social studies classrooms, I mean, current events are a critical part of the curriculum. And, you know, I know leading up to last May 1st, you know, that was um, a current event that was discussed in many of the classrooms and schools across the district. And, you know, in that way, you know, students did have a chance to, to hear, the, hear the issues and, and voice their concerns about the issues. And it would, it would um, impact all students, not right. just right. We are not allowed to discuss this. We are not allowed to discuss that. And I just wonder, is that true, or is that just one of those myths we need to get rid of? If I may speak for the district, I think that's more one of those myths that that may exist, or urban legends, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, <laughs> because, as Dr. Steele said, that is a current event. 
no more than we would say we're not allow we're not allowing teachers to teach about the situation in Iraq because for whatever reason we may think is justified or unjustified. That's not our call to make, much the same as this. But it is our responsibility to treat it the same as any other current event or any other teachable moment that may exist in our society. So that gives me ammunition to quote back at those teachers and tell them to answer. Good, tell them to call me. <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the key words there is you said turn them loose. We're permitting the parents to remove the child from the school for the parents' reasons. We're not turning the child loose into a political situation. That's not the role of the school. In the 50s and 60s, when I grew up, May 1st had a different connotation. That was the Soviets marching their nuclear arms through Red Square. So it's relevant. Times are relevant. What happens in the community is relevant. And our good teachers and great teachers seize those opportunities for learning moments. And when those discussions come up, uh, they're addressed, but they're addressed in a learning mode and in an objective mode, not, not a political mode. Yeah. I, I think the key was the difference between educate and advocate. Uh, educate is, our, is, is the school district's purview, to educate, to give accurate information on both sides of whatever issue it is, of what's going on. But uh, advocacy is a whole other issue. And if I can add, I do not, the feedback I got from our youth was that there was not much of that at that time going on. Um, I think that in the classrooms, because I was teaching at Leto at the time after school, there was a little bit of um, what I mentioned earlier. Why should Mexican students be able to take the day off? And I think those, that wasn't the point. And so... Um, one of those things that we did was reframe it and talk about immigration in, in context. Um, and I think that's, that's something teachers should be encouraged to do, but I think a lot of it comes from FCAT. It comes from other things that they've got to do, they've got to teach to. They, they, it's hard to take time away, I think. And I, that's probably where you guys could come up with some solutions. How do you, if you've got something scheduled, how do you then interrupt what you have planned for that day and talk about something else? My last question. I noticed in providing assessments for AYPs for most schools that rather than um, coming up with measures or ways to provide uh, services for immigrant students, that um, they're just finding ways to exempt them from being counted as a part of the school's AYPs or their benchmarks, measuring their benchmarks or whatever. Actually, you, you cannot do that. There's, and I believe it's what, after the second year, first year, first, first year they're allowed one, yeah, they used to be. They were allowed two years after arrival in the United States to not take the FCAT. But after the second year, then they began taking the FCAT. That law was changed. It is now one year after arrival that their FCAT score counts, quote unquote, counts. Um, and, uh, but other than that, no, there is no, the there is no exemption. Exceptional student education was the same way. Those scores were not counted, and, and now they are. And to be quite frank with you, for the same reasons you just mentioned, it was easier, and it was perceived and sometimes probably abused that this was a way to avoid test scores that may impact your district or school average. Is that possible?
difficult as you as you can well imagine I, you're, you're facing the same issue and we have worked with the community we even have parents and believe it or not students who sometimes act as interpreters for us now usually when I mentioned the town meetings that has not become as as big an issue as it is when we're working with interpreting transcripts uh, things like that, that that are much more specific. Uh, I know Vivian deals with, she's one of the ones that has to interpret transcripts from other countries. And while she may be bilingual in one or two languages, she certainly is not in a hundred, I, I thought it was up to like 140 languages yeah, that, that, that we have now in the district. So that does become difficult. And we try to also work with some of the other community agencies that sometimes can provide us with assistance to do that. And that's where I go. I know with the transcripts. I have, uh, I have come, I have gone to the University of South Florida, uh, the International Affairs Department, and uh, they have graduate students or postgraduate students who can assist in a variety of languages. Now with Gulf Coast uh, Jewish Family Services, they, can, they offer assistance in about eight or nine languages that are the most dominant. You know. Uh, we have some languages that are spoken only by, you know, one or two people. But those two kids, that's their language. I mean, uh, so yes, uh, that is one of the things. The town meetings that I'm thinking of are what we call our parent advisory councils and our district advisory councils. And at those meetings, depending on the variety of families that are there, predominantly they're Hispanic families, uh, the second largest group that we have our, our Haitian Creole population, and then our uh, Korean population and Vietnamese, okay? Normally at those DAC meetings and the PAC meetings, if we have a variety of people, we do what Mr. Otero was saying, and that is have a translator doing simultaneous translation through headphones of what's going on at the meeting. Uh, I have been at meetings where it's only been two groups, and I present in both languages. Well, thank you for that information. I, one of the things we had been doing was using our students to help, but sometimes we found the students would only relay the information that they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> that is an issue, and, and I don't want anybody walking out of here thinking we use our students to translate our uh, transcripts. We, we don't. But for the, but yeah, right, they have a tendency to just know A. But anyway. Um, Actually, some of yeah. our Hispanic students know F. I had a student who told his mother that he was doing fabulosamente, fabulosamente. <laughs> and his report card came home, and of course he had three fabulosas. <laughs> and uh, the, she couldn't understand why I was demanding to see her at school, because I had been calling and calling when her kid was doing so well. But she came, and she says, Miss Oliva, look. He's doing fabulosamente. <laughs> and I said, 
fabulosamente said no, fracaso, which means failure. Fra and also starts with an F. Fracaso. And she looked at him. I don't know what happened to him after that. But yes, students have a tendency to turn the world to their own liking. Thank you. Harold, I think we have... I was, I was going to ask a question about uh, supports for teachers. Uh, let me preface it. Uh, first of all, uh, <clears throat> as a college of ed, we're very concerned about diversity issues. And, and over the last couple of years, we've done some focus groups with faculty around how do we, how do we introduce diversity issues in our classes, build it into, and really infuse it seriously into our courses. And one of, a number of themes that came out of that was some faculty, anyway, felt some discomfort with the elephant in the room sometimes. The uh, question comes up, how do I respond to it? I don't know how to respond to this kind of thing, this kind of issue. And I'm, I'm wondering, in the same way, how, what kinds of supports are available for teachers in the school district um, to use teachable moments or to address in a responsive and supportive way the perhaps very difficult questions around May 1st or around who knows? November, March, or whatever. I mean, who, who are there supports available for teachers so they're so they're uh, they're able to respond in ways that are in fact educational and use the teachable moments, as opposed to ooh, that was an uncomfortable moment. Let me let me just squash this and then perhaps squash that child. Well, well, and it's a good question. One of the things that we do have, we have a very extensive staff development department that does do staff development on just those topics and have specific days set aside for just that staff development but then again that cannot touch on the i don't want to say everyday things because they don't happen every day but the things that you don't plan for that could come up and in our schools we have we're broken down into, some of you may be familiar, seven areas, and within the seven areas, because like I mentioned earlier, we're over 200 schools and something like 15,000 teachers, to kind of give you an idea. In fact, Mr. Person mentioned growth in the district. In the last 10 years, we have built 60 schools. Now, those of you who live in Pasco County, that's your whole county. In, in the last 10 years, the schools we have built. So that, that in itself is a large school district. But anyway, going back to what I was saying, and within those areas, there are support. We have elementary, what we call generalists, which work with the curriculum in the elementary school where teachers can go with just such a question. In other words, look, this has come up, or I was asked earlier, are they allowed to do that? That's a support. In each subject area, we have personnel that work with the teachers in those subject areas, plus a support that comes out of guidance services and other areas in the district where, where they can ask for that help. Okay, Carlos, uh, you're going to do the concluding segue and pull all these ideas together. Let me see this happen. No. <laughs> no, we still we still have, have some uh, questions. I, I know that Dr. Jose Hernandez. Well, I, I really I really don't have a question, but I just wanted to know if maybe you could take a minute and perhaps give us some feedback. What are some things that we're doing as a university, as a college of education, graduate, undergraduate? What are some of the things that we are doing well? Where we can do differently to support your mission, to support your work. Uh, the fact that you're here today is a testament to what you're doing, and I really appreciate it. As, a, as an immigrant, 
The decisions that you make affected my life and affected the lives of people like me. And I want to hear more about perhaps some of the feedback that you have for us. How can we support you? What do we need to continue to do or, or change? And any one of you can answer that. And I really appreciate what you've before, done today. Before you do, as a matter of fact, I, and I appreciate what Professor Hernandez mentioned that as an immigrant myself, I was wondering about the same type of question. And instead of wrapping up in the, uh, as a summary, I wanted to bring back to the panelists um, for uh, suggestions and advice on how can we improve our own mission to support your mission. Well, and you can pipe in, David. But one of the things that I think is paramount to do in this is the communication between the two groups, the university and the, the public school system here. And working with our staffs along with yours to develop some of the curriculum and some of the things that you're doing to teach the prospective teachers of what to expect. And a lot of that is happening now with the practitioners who are working with you who have just left the school system and are now working as professors in your university. That, that has been to, to bridge that. And my impression, and I'm going to touch on that a second, is that that's been phenomenal. The, the students that are now coming out of that master's program where they have the practitioner working with the college professor. And so you get both sides of that aspect. And, and that's very important. But I think just the open lines of communication between and becoming a part of our, I mentioned our in-service days and things like that, becoming a part of that and allowing us to go into your classrooms, our teachers, and to, to speak with your students with real-life practical experiences that, that would be very useful to prospective teachers. I was going to add, um, when teachers come into the workforce, um, I'd like them to have a, a, a good grasp of strategies that are used in, in dealing with English second language students, ESOL strategies. Um, Mr. Gatlin mentioned, and I know that I took some courses last year, that you know, all the way through building administrators, we're trained in strategies. Um, to help explain material to ESOL students. And because of the diversity in our district, sometimes we, we, we misrepresent or, or think too much of Hispanic students and think that if you just do instruction in Spanish, you know, they can learn. But we're dealing with great diversity. You know, you can't possibly teach your courses in Spanish, Vietnamese, Korean, Croatian, Farsi, and every other language. What teachers need is the ability to teach their course in understandable ways to students that are struggling with English. I was going to say in answer to your question before, I think one thing that helps teachers deal with current event kind of situations is the fact that we have done a lot of instructing just in ESOL kind of situations. They know that the ESOL resource teachers at our school help them with lesson plans, help them deal with issues, and I think that there's a, a greater awareness. But, you know, if, if that awareness was, was more involved with our newer teachers, you know, that could help us out also. And uh, clearly I might say in, in terms of the College of Education that preparing our students to teach effectively the whole range of diverse students is something that we all hold dear. And it was only within, I'd say, the last six months or so where the college was privileged to host the Florida Department of Education and also NPR, uh, uh, our national creditor. And one of the things that they looked at in specific was 
to what extent were our students able to uh, effectively teach students from diverse groups. And we were recognized for our ability to meet those both state and national standards in that area. The other thing I think uh, that uh, the national accreditors pointed out to us was the fact that uh, the faculty here really pride themselves on making those linkages to the public schools. And it's, I think, such a great tribute to us that you were able to join us today and to share your expertise. And I tell you, during the last 50 years, the College of Education has prepared 50,000 educators. And we are so pleased that on our 50th anniversary this year, we will be graduating some 1,300 students who hopefully will be coming to your districts as well. And so we thank you so very much, and I turn it to Dr. Zalba for his closing comments, because I know we have students who need to go to their next class. Well, you know, what can I say? The uh, idea initially was to discuss issues that are current, and I, I, in summarizing, I can say that there are two major elements that we have addressed to some extent. One has to do with perceptions, how students sometimes perceive situations and may miss opportunities because of misperception. And I, I heard you dispelling several myths that many uh, uh, students may have. And the other one is the addressing of current issues. The idea of embracing what it becomes critical, you know, for our society and at moments, and somehow infusing that within the curriculum in an objective way, without becoming a quote-unquote voice for a political situation, but more vo of a voice for an objective analysis of, of issues that impact all of us. And for all that, of course, we thank you for being here, and we hope that the future will bring new opportunities for having this type of interaction. Uh, Mr. Otero mentioned the idea of having a communication, the opportunity to be uh, available for classes and vice versa. I think that that's the icing of the experience, the ability to have this ongoing dialogue and, and to have many more uh, uh, in the future. Thank you.